0: You can support this podcast on Patreon.com forward slash First Paw Media. Here's to the adventure-seeking dog mushers out there, the hundreds of you who stand on the runners dreaming and thinking about the Northern Lights. Of course, there is something else you can do if you've got something to say. Start a podcast with First Paw Media and harness your creative side, maybe even earn enough money, enough money to tell yourself, hey, I'm not just a dog musher, I'm a rover. I'm a wanderer. I'm a voyager. I'm an explorer. Visit firstpaw.media. Mush on over today. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Three, two,
1: one. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert and I am joined by my co-host Tony and Michelle. And we are continuing our Iditarod coverage pretty much when every other media outlet has rolled up their bags and is on their way home. But we'll be here for three more nights. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, With all that being said, Michelle, how is the day working out here in Willow?
2: My goodness, what a busy day it was. Not only was it busy with uh, 12 students from the University of Alaska Anchorage learning all about dog mushing, we had an Iditarod fan amongst the students, and that was the only reason why he took the course.
1: Yeah, he is a hardcore fan, Tony, and guess who his favorite musher is? Mitch CV. uh
3: Mitch CV. yes uh, and he, I, I was gonna be like it has to be a CV if you're asking me yes
1: so. he is a huge fan and it's interesting when you have those super fans come out and uh, experience mushing for real and his comment today at the end of class was now I can fully understand a little bit about what it goes on to go from you know uh, a fan to a musher. So I thought that was pretty cool to give them that perspective. So with that in mind, Tony, how is it going down there in your neck of the woods?
3: Your student's going to be the next Eddie Burke or Hunter, uh, Keith there. Hey, uh, it's be. going pretty well. We had snow this morning, which my dog was in a state of depression. He is very much a summer dog being a short coated, small little dog. He's over the snow, but Um, I think we have snow in the forecast all next week, so I guess I was getting myself a little too excited about the sun yesterday, because it's going away now.
1: Yeah, and uh, of course, next week is the start of spring, I believe, some point next week. I think it's the 21st (laughs) or whatever. They're all running together. It's the 17th today, so happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody that is celebrating, and uh, we're going to jump right into this. In terms of trail report... We are happy to announce everybody is in off the trail. Uh, Since we were on last night, Mike came in, Bailey came in, Joanna, Gerhardt, Bridget, Jed, and Jason. So for all intents and purposes, the Iditarod is over. All they have left to do is the banquet, which will be on Sunday afternoon or evening. I'm not sure exactly when that starts, and we will be here to talk about that. So our first story of the night, Tony, is about Jed Stevenson. I guess he took a wrong turn on his way into Nome. What do you know?
3: Yeah, fans noticed it right away. Those of us that are on Insider were watching the little trackers trying to figure out when um, he was going to be into Nome. I actually have a friend who lives and works in Nome, and so she kept messaging me all day while she was working asking how far the mushers were out, and I just happened to look down, and, oh, look, Jed is running in front of Cape Nome, which is that last little, they call it a hill or a mountain, but Nome calls it a mountain. Iditarod calls it a hill. Mushers are just thankful that it's over once it's over because they're all tired of running uphill behind their sleds to help the dogs out, um, but Jed didn't have to do that. He ran in front of it and went around and finished. Um, now, whether or not that means a penalty, either time or monetary, rod has not said. Um, it could be that they're just going to, like, ignore it or let it slide because he was second to last uh, of the mushers to come in. And so there wasn't really an advantage. He had enough of a lead. It wasn't like he and Jason were neck and neck. Um So that remains to be seen, or it could have been a GPS glitch, though he was the only one that glitched that way. Um, And he could have also gone up the mountain. Who knows? Um, We may or may not find out about that come the banquet on Sunday. Um, Typically those types of stories kind of come out in the musher banquet stories.
1: So, you know, my understanding of Alaska, hills and mountains when my story about the Tustamina has been told a few times i obviously have not run iditarod so i have no idea the answer to this but how big is this hill or mountain is it a thousand feet is it a bunny hill is it something you could ski down what is it do you know
3: um you know i've seen it from gnome uh and it's definitely i would i would guess that it's Something like what you experienced in the Caribou Hills, the difference is there's only one.
0: <laughs> okay. it's, not
3: a, it's not a plural, I, I think, but like in terms of just size. But every team that wasn't running in the windstorm seemed to take it up and over pretty dang quickly. So it can't be that. I, I shouldn't even say that because I've never actually run up it with a dog team or done anything with the mountain. Um, you know, it's it's a mountain by Appalachian standards. I don't know if it's a mountain by South Central Alaska standards. Is that a good way to put
1: it? Yep, it's definitely not Pioneer Peak or one of those that's down here in our <laughs> neck of the woods. So uh, another question that I'm sure we've discussed on this podcast before, and the, the um, procedure is mistaking me, a lot of folks may or may not know that the mushers have to stop at some point in between safety and Nome and put on their, their bib, their, their, uh, you know, their number. Do you know where that has to occur by? I'm sure they could do it anywhere, but at some point they have to have that on. Is it when they come up off the beach there or someplace other than what I'm thinking?
3: Um, I don't think it's right there when they come up onto Front Street. It is during one of the road crossings, is my understanding. Um, they also, that's when they give the Red Lantern the red lantern to take into the finish. So, um, which I did not actually know that that's where they got that. I just always assumed it was in the chute. Um, but they made a big deal about that today. Um, as far as you know, the, that that had been handed off. So I I assume that it's around the same time that they're they're told to get their bibs on. But by the time they're coming up off the beach onto Front Street, they've got the bibs on.
1: And remember, guys, uh, these bibs have not been on for around twelve days. Twelve days ish. And it's interesting. We're looking at the uh, the race countdown or count up, whatever it is, on Iditarod.com. Right now, as we record, 12 days, 4 hours, 51 minutes, 54 seconds. Man, time has flown by, but it's also been a very long couple of weeks. That's for sure for both us and uh, everybody else, I'm sure. But back to the bibs. So these guys take their bibs off probably pretty soon after uh, they start the race. And most often, they're just kind of shoved in the in the uh, sled bag somewhere. And then they have to dig these out. I assume they dig them out somewhere around White Mountain or whatever uh, so they can make sure that they can grab them. Because trying to grab something out of your sled bag while you're still cruising down the trail, whether you have five dogs or 14, especially at a road crossing, can be an interesting scenario. So they have to get that bad boy out, put it back on. It's usually on with a couple of Velcro straps and it has to go over your parka. So it's not something that's easily just thrown over your head and and attached down. Sometimes it even takes two people, depending on how uh, big your gear is. So as they move up, uh, before we talk about the Red Lantern, we want to talk about a couple of other quick stories, and that is about about Bridget Watkins. Evidently, she got an interesting escort. What do you know about that?
3: So... I, I feel that I, I knew this little bit of trivia and I don't recall actually saying it on the podcast. And then after about day two, I had totally forgotten about it until she came up on front street today. Um, Bridget was carrying a special package. She was carrying the ashes of fallen court services officer Curtis Warland. He passed away. Um, He's actually one of the only human recorded um, muskox victims. He was, um, I believe, on a break from work, had heard that the muskox were trying to break into um, his dog yard. He was a recreational musher there in Nome. And so he went to dissuade the the muskoxen from attacking his dogs and in the process somehow was gored or trampled by these musk oxen. They look cute and fuzzy and wooly. And yes, I want to hug every one of them, but they are actually one of the most dangerous animals in Alaska. Um, they're, they're very, they're very anti-sled dogs. I think they would join those, you know, PETA like-minded people in a hurry because they hate sled dogs. But, um, They attacked and killed him. He, of course, his body was flown to to Anchorage for autopsy or whatever purposes and uh, cremated. And Bridget was bringing his ashes home. So when she uh, got up onto Front Street with her team, behind her were all of the uh, Alaska State Troopers, the Nome Police, the fire trucks and ambulance They all had their lights and sirens going, so she had a procession behind her, Um, and then she was met in the shoot by not only her family and friends, but that of Officer Warland, and she was given a giant hug by his wife. It was quite emotional if you got to see it on the live feed um, once you realized who that was that she was hugging for so long. Um, it was just a very, very special moment. There are videos on social media from locals that were there who got a, a video of the procession behind the musher. It was it was very moving. It was probably one of the most memorable parts of Iditarod for me.
1: They had the sirens on too, huh?
3: Yeah, Wow. it was it was a full-on officer uh, funeral procession.
1: How did the dogs handle that as they were uh, in front of all that?
3: They kept going. They went straight for that shoot. There wasn't any hesitation. It was pretty amazing. I don't know if the sirens were going the whole time. It didn't sound like it. And they may have waited until they felt like the dogs were far enough along, but there were definite sirens towards the end of the procession.
1: And that happened, that accident. Was that this winter or this fall or when? Do you know?
3: That was just, uh, I want to say just a couple months ago. I want to say it was right around Christmas time.
1: I remember that. And uh, obviously, because not only was it was in Alaska, but he was a dog musher as well. And yeah, those, those musk ox are something else. And I know that Nome has a real problem with them. I know a couple of mushers that live up there and they're constantly on guard. Uh, for those dang muskox, and uh, yeah, they're they're bigger than moose, and I think uh, just a little bit smaller than your typical buffalo. But man, they look like they're all muscle, and it looks like they they would make you have a bad day real quick. So the next story up is about Gerhart, and we talked a little bit about him when we profiled him in our musher profile. We talked about how he moved up here from South Africa and got his green card or, or a work permit or whatever he got and he came up to run I did a rod last year. it did not end well for him. He had to scratch and I would imagine uh, if you're traveling that kind of distance with that kind of resources just like um, Christian Turner who's from Australia it's it's not an easy task to make it that far to come to Alaska. But he ended up um, working with the CVs, I believe. I think he's working with Mitch Seavy mm-hmm. with, um, with his dog team. And the focus this year was unfinished business, of course, because he came up here and was unable to do that. And he has a very cool patch that he made uh, from Five Sibes Sewing and Repair. They do excellent work, uh, Becky and her daughter, Uh, They've done a lot of work for us over the years, and they are the go-to company for any type of patch work. So check them out on Facebook. But he has a very cool patch that says, Africa to Alaska, Iditarod 2023, unfinished business. And it looks like uh, the um, Alaskan sunset with all those rose-colored sunsets. And it is a very cool uh, graphic. But I am glad to say that uh, his, his business is finished. So congratulations to Gerhardt. Do you know any more to that story or just what I said, uh, Tony?
3: Um, just to mention that he and Bridget both scratched together after injuring each other, injuring themselves in that same little spot on the Topcock Hills last year. Um, And they came into Nome together. Uh, It was something that they both said was very special about the ending of this year's Iditarod, that they ended last year together and they ended this year together much happier, much healthier. Neither one of them had any broken bones. Um, So it was a very, very cool uh, thing to watch. Uh, And then also Gerhardt's the first South African to ever finish Iditarod which he is very proud of he's already posted on social media very excited about the finish so congratulations to Gerhardt congratulations to Bridget just like Katie Joe, Dieter the other night they they took it by storm literally uh they didn't let the the windstorms they're in Unalakleet, Shaktulik and Elam thwart their plans to get that belt buckle this
1: year. And speaking of that storm, I saw another video this afternoon that uh, Wade Mars posted, and he was right behind Hunter Keefe, and they were traveling through a pretty gnarly storm. It looked like this was just a very short uh, Facebook reel or TikTok story or whatever, and he said in the in the text of it, "This is 45 miles an hour." Uh, But we just came out of, or it's just about ready to happen, 70 miles an hour. And he said his dogs did not flinch. They just pulled right through. So that's pretty impressive. I've never been in that kind of wind. I've been in wind, but I've never been in anything like 70 miles an hour. That's dang near close to hurricane winds. I think a hurricane uh, down south, a hurricane is 75 miles an hour. I may be mistaken on that. So definitely check out those videos as well. Our next story up is about Jason Mackey. As we said last night, it looked like he was going to be the Red Lantern recipient. Uh, He did come in to Nome as that Red Lantern uh, recipient. You don't want to say Red Lantern winner. Uh, That's kind of frowned upon because you um, you, you are definitely a recipient of that. Uh, As Tony mentioned, I I didn't know this either, that you're given the Red Lantern there at one of the crossings, probably where you have to put your bib on, and you ride with that a little bit of way to to the finish. And then more interestingly is the story about the Willow's Lamp. The Willow's Lamp, as we said, I think it was last night, it is not the Red Lantern. It's a different type of uh, lantern, I guess, and that is extinguished by the last musher that comes in, obviously the Red Lantern recipient. Now, the widow's uh, the widow's lamp, as we said last night, harkens back to back in the old days where the roadhouses would keep some type of light on uh, for the mushers so they could, you know, as they're traveling down the trail, they could stop in and grab a bite to eat or rest or whatever. And it's very similar to that old TV ad for Motel 6 where they say, we'll leave the lights on for you. So that's what happens with the Willow's Lamp. So often there are pictures, and I'm sure there are videos, or you may have seen them, Tony, of Jason extinguishing that and then uh, the race being officially over at that point. Now, a lot of fans probably know this story, but more casual fans or fans that are not in Alaska uh, may not know this, but as you're traveling outside of Anchorage, if you look to the right, if you're on the Glen Highway, you will see a very large star. And they light that star during the holidays, right there around Thanksgiving or Christmas, sometime around there. And then that star is sort of the beacon as you head out of Anchorage and into the valley. It's a beacon there on the hill. And I think that would be a hill, not a mountain. And then after the last musher is in, which is right now, they turn that star off. I think that's a really cool tribute to not only the history of Iditarod, but just sort of how the entire community of Alaska is sort of pulling for all of these guys the entire time with this this light. And I know during COVID, they were having some kind of issue with being able to access the light or... You know something was happening. I think it's done by the military, if my memory is correct. Do you, Michelle or Tony, know that full story? Michelle shaking her head. Do you know Tony? <laughs>
3: um, so it is. It is put on by the military. Part of the problem was it's just such an old tradition. Um, that the infrastructure was needing a lot of work. And because of COVID, shutdowns and whatnot, materials weren't readily available. As we all know, those of us in Alaska who have done any sort of renovation lately, uh, it's expensive and you can't always get all of the parts all at the same time. So a lot of it was due to just uh, supply and demand and materials, but they got it all set back up and it worked great this year. It looked the best it ever has. And it's It can be turned on and off remotely. They don't actually have to hike up there to turn it on and then hike up there to turn it off, which is what they had to do quite, you know, every year. And it became an issue uh, during one of our springs, I can't remember which one, where they almost couldn't get up to it because of avalanche or some sort of concern like that.
1: And I can only imagine how big the light bulbs are for that bad boy because you can <laughs> see it for miles. So it's got to be a pretty big endeavor to be able to hike up there uh, back the, like they did back in the day. So that's technology for you. Now it's like a a smart light or a Hue light. You can just say, Alexa, turn off the the Anchorage Star or whatever it's called. And I guess it would just uh, turn right off for you. So very interesting story there. Uh, one other fact that I did not know that that Michelle and... Tony told me about, is the Red Lantern now uh, receives a cash prize. Uh, What is that uh, prize, uh, Michelle?
2: Uh, Linden Transport uh, supplies the award for the Red Lantern, and it is a cash prize of $1,000.
1: That is pretty cool. For years, they just got the lantern and the accolades, and uh, Pat's on the back for that Uh, that uh, award and remember I said from a musher's perspective as a dog musher you only want a couple and a couple is really stretching it (laughs) red lanterns on your trophy shelf and I told my UAA students the other day on zoom that uh, both Nicole and I have gotten our fair share of red lanterns and when they were here inside of our house tonight uh, eating lunch they looked up onto our loft and they said hey Are those your Red Lanterns? And I said, yep, we have four of them. Two for me, two for Nicole. So they're up there. Uh, Nicole has one for Junior Iditarod and the Willow 100. And then I have one for a couple of mid-distance races. But I would bet that uh, Jason Mackey, uh, now that he is a recipient, is proud of the uh, award or Mm -hmm. being a participant. But I bet it's not his favorite on his shelf. Would you tend to agree with me, Tony?
3: You know, I don't know because he did when um, he came into the finish. He was just so amazed that there were so many people around. He got escorted by quite a few, you know, cop cars and the streets were full. Crowds were cheering. And I think he said that that was the biggest crowd he'd ever come into Nome with um because he has been a middle of the pack to you know top barely top 20 type uh finishes uh in his career so to have everybody come out for that red lantern there were quite a few uh past champions veteran mushers everybody was out there cheering him on um, so I, I think that this one will be special for several reasons personal to him that he maybe didn't feel like he wanted to share during his little post-race interview that was impromptu there and he's tired, I'm sure, and just ready to be done. Um, but he, uh, he seemed to genuinely enjoy taking care of that Red Lantern and that Widow's Lamp. So it. I don't know, you know, there there are some that really embrace the red lantern. We have a former Iditarod musher down here on the peninsula. He literally has it plastered all over his dog truck that he's the red lantern recipient, you know. That's it's a big deal to fans. And so I think depending on what type of musher you are, maybe if you are a competitive musher, you may not like that red lantern so much, but if you were just going to finish then having that Red Lantern, I think, is extra special. It's one little extra doodad, not just a buckle and a finisher's patch.
1: And did he say anything in the interview about Lance or his mom or anything? Of course, that was the big story leading up to this. Did he say anything right. there? Or do you think he'll say that at the, uh, at the finisher's banquet?
3: He did mention that he left Lance at White Mountain. Um, and so I don't know if... You know, because they asked him if he was leaving ashes and no, he said, no, Lance's last checkpoint was White Mountain. So I don't know if that means that he's just not ready to give up any more ashes of his brother. Um, As he mentioned at the beginning of the race, he wasn't sure if he'd be able to leave any of his mother's ashes along the trail. Um, He wasn't ready to really give her up. and, And so I kind of wonder if, you know, he spread Lance's ashes throughout the race but now it's like you know what I don't want to spread his ashes in front of everybody it's, it's very personal I'm sure um, you know the the person who is asking him the questions really kept coming back to that story and he kind of shut her down not in a rude way or anything but it was just like you know you could tell that she wanted some tears she wanted to invoke some emotions for the the audience and the viewers. And he wasn't really as forthcoming as I think some fans had hoped. Uh, That was something that I saw in comments where they were like, wow, you know, I really expected more emotion from that. They were very emotional for him, but they were wanting more emotion from him. Um, But, you know, we're talking about 12 days on the trail. Nothing went right for Jason. He said that his dogs were sick for most of it. Um, You know, the heat at the beginning didn't help. The storm at the end didn't help. And now here he is coming in last, barely with the minimum amount of five dogs. So I I think we'll probably see a different Jason, like you said, at the banquet and maybe we'll get a few more stories there. But for now, I think Jason just needed a nap and maybe a burger and fries.
1: There you go. So one last thing in terms of our trail report and its stories, we had four scratches in this year's rod, Eric Kelly, Brent Sass, Greg Vitello, and Jennifer Labar. That seems uh, uh, much less than a typical year, even though we only had a very small field. Uh, let's have both of you guys talk about that for just a second. Michelle, what do you think about such a small number of teams scratching?
2: Well, I think that that's a good thing. Um, considering the average, but I think that it is right in line with any other race. Actually, we had such a small field, you know, if we had 45 mushers, I think that you would have seen eight or nine scratches.
1: Tony, I believe, what is it usually about 10% ish, uh, scratch, maybe a little bit more. If I remember in all the years that we've recovered this, we have covered this. It's usually up there around 10, 12, uh, people, uh, this seems like a, a very small number. Does it you to you? Do, does it to you as well?
3: Well, I mean, if we're talking ten percent, you know, there were only thirty three teams, and we have four teams that scratched, so I think we're still right in there. Um, I'm not a mathematician, and I haven't really looked to see what other years, you know, what it stacks out to being that ratio. But I think, like Michelle said, you know, with only 33 teams four probably is right there in line with some of those years where we had 80 teams and 15 to 20 scratches
1: yeah uh well kudos to everybody and uh being able to finish and and do their thing especially to those rookies we had uh, four rookies in uh in the finishing order today as we said with mike williams coming in Uh, last uh, after our coverage and the rest
2: out of the nine rookies that entered the race, only two scratched.
1: Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So congratulations to everybody out there. A couple of more stories here. Uh, First up is about Ryan Reddington, this year's champion. I know, I think it was last night, Tony, you talked about uh, the big basketball tournament going on. Basketball in rural Alaska is huge. They are not only, uh, uh, very good players out there, but that is something that uh, the fans in the villages really support. What do you know about uh, the story about Ryan?
3: So the Reddingtons are very big supporters of the um, Invitational, the Iditarod Invitational. It started in 1974, which was the year after Iditarod started. So it is a longstanding tradition in Iditarod history and so, of course, the Reddingtons are going to be huge supporters. Joe Senior, of course, very good friends with the um, person who started the Invitational. And I do apologize. I know I should know the name because it's actually in the name of the basketball tournament. But I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, so Ryan always tries to go to some of the games after he finishes Iditarod. And, of course. This year was no exception, but when he walked in with his handful of raffle tickets, the entire gymnasium seemed to get up on their feet. They were giving him an ovation, and then as he went to sit down, they all went from just clapping and cheering to chanting Ryan. So it's a very big deal for many, many reasons. Of course, the story of a Reddington finally winning Joe Sr.'s race is a big deal but he's also alaska native which resonates very deeply with the people of alaska and so it's it's nice to see it it's nice to see that ryan isn't um changing up his habits his post-race habits just because he's one he's still going to all the same things that he did previously, it doesn't matter that he's the champion, and he also has to do the press tours and, and everything else that I know just from my experience working behind the scenes with an Iditarod champion. Um, that there's a lot that the champion does that never gets talked about an in Insider, and it's all really boring, and it's mainly just talking to press from all over the world at random times of day and night. So um, that he's still able to go to the basketball tournament. And I'm sure he went to the craft fair and he probably went to the soup supper that's there, Um, you know, and just being able to celebrate his win, I think is a huge, huge deal.
1: And fans may or may not know this, but there is a school now called uh, Reddington. Is it a high school or a middle school? Do you know? Both. Both. Okay, so it's both. It's called Reddington High Middle School High School, right there, very close to uh, the Reddington Homestead there. It just opened a few years ago, and it's my understanding that they have a really cool uh, bronze uh, statue formation thing of a dog team out in front of that. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to go over and see it. Michelle, I know you do a lot of dog training in that area. Have you ever been over to the Reddington School?
2: Uh, no, typically I drive past there, but it is a nice <laughs> looking school. Um, I, I'm i usually one track mine. I've got to get to where I'm getting going and I don't have time to just kind of have a Sunday drive.
1: So very cool to have a school named after your family name. And of course, that harkens back well back to to Joe and his homestead right there in that area, which is uh Uh, the Kinnick area, and it's right off of a road called Kinnick-Goose Bay Road, one of the major roads here in the valley. So that is the next story. So our next story is about a volunteer in Nome. Her name is Nicole. What is up with Nicole, and what is her job there in Nome?
3: Uh, Nicole, I'm just going to apologize now if you're listening. We just decided that you're just Nicole because your your last name is, is long, and, and I don't know how to pronounce it, so I apologize. Nicole is uh, one of those Iditarod volunteer extraordinaires. She starts out down at the start and restart. She was actually in the starting shoot helping hold teams back, uh, they're in Willow as they counted down, and then, I believe anyway, I know she said she was in the chute holding the sled at one point, point. Um, and then she flies up to Nome, and she is one of the checkers that uh, checks the teams in off the trail, and that also requires you to hold a microphone, and as the team is running up Front Street, you have to read their little bio Uh, which we do with our little musher of the day features, which is always fun, but, you know, some are long, some are short. Uh, So she also, if she knows anything extra about the musher, she may add a few little details here or there. I think she also asks the family and friends that are in the shoot for any little nuggets of wisdom on their musher. Uh, And she... Uh, I typically, in in a bigger roster year, typically they have two checkers so that they're rotating and not getting completely exhausted. But my view of it this year, it looked like it was just her uh, welcoming in every team, which when you only have 20-something teams, I think is a little bit easier. She posted on Facebook uh, last night, she's like, that's the last one for a while. I can actually sleep. Um, and so she's just very energetic, very passionate about the race and about the mushers. And she did a phenomenal job so well, in fact, that fans sent her pizza from Milano's. And uh, one of the people that sent her pizza was named Tony. She thought it was me. And then I felt bad because it wasn't me. Um, but yeah, she's, she's got a fan club now with the different uh, Iditarod fans, both in the insider chat as well as on Facebook.
1: Cool story. And um, if if she was the only one, for a long time there, the teams were coming in about every four hours, you know, and it's happening Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. So I can only imagine if you're the only one there, you know, you're getting woken up by another checker or whoever and say, hey, Nicole, here comes one up, up front street you got to jump outside so i would imagine uh, the last few days for her has been uh, probably as sleepless as most of the mushers for sure <laughs> so let's jump over to our musher of the night and it is a a young woman named joanna michelle what do you know about joanna
2: well we know that joanna likes to keep secrets And it's really difficult (laughs) to find out anything about this sweet girl from her friends and family, but she was very excited to run in Iditarod 2023, and she says she's hopeful to see the entire trail. Well, Joanna, you not only saw the entire trail, you finished. Um, She wanted to finish with a happy and healthy team. Uh, She says that she grew up running dogs on her parents' trap line on the Porcupine River, and was never quite about to get rid of the dog-mushing bug. She loves spending time on the trail with her favorite four-legged pals.
1: Tony, do you know any other nuggets about Joanna?
3: (laughs) Well, I know she has one of your favorite kennel names in Motley Crew. Yep. And she actually uh, ran the race one other time, but she ran it in 2021, which was the Gold Loop Trail. So she wanted to run it again and see the entire trail. So she's, you know, I mean, she did part of the run. She did the southern route in a way, um, but she had never been on the coast. So this was all kind of brand new to her, the third, third, as you call it. Um, so she did really, really well, and she did run with um, dogs not only out of her kennel, which again was the Motley Crew kennel, um, but she also borrowed some dogs from Jesse Holmes and from Dewclaw, which are Jody Bailey and Dan Caduce's dogs. Uh, so she was welcomed in by Quite's crew this morning. Um, and I, I wish that she, uh, that she had more people working her social media so that I could have found out a few things. She did get married recently, so uh, congrats to her on that. But she seems very excited to be doing what she's doing, and it's always great to hear about mushers who didn't grow up in a racing kennel but in something like a trap line kennel, uh, something that harkens back more to the tradition of dog mushing.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking at her website right now, Sled dot com, and she's been around for a little bit and has done pretty well in the 2015 sixteen season. That was her first season on her website. She came in third in the Yukon Quest 300. That's a pretty tough qualifying race, and she's also run many of the other races around the state, include the Willow 300, the Two Rivers 200. Uh, and the Copper Basin, as well as the Cusco. It's interesting to see uh, younger mushers like this run in the Cusco 300. That is, is arguably uh, uh, the granddaddy of mid distance mushing. And she did that. And interestingly enough, she won the Vet Award for that race as well. So congrats to Joanna. Congrats for seeing the entire trail. And uh, I'm sure you have caught the mushing bug 100% now, and you'll probably be back for sure. So let's go into our last segment of the night. And that is our I did a questions. Last night we asked, What is your favorite mushing book? And we did not pigeonhole it down to be a novel or a handbook or a memoir or a children's book. And you got quite a bit of responses. It took some time for them to really pick up steam, but I saw today, I think there was 30 or 40 responses over on Twitter with some replies as well. What were people talking about?
3: I was really surprised with how few people on Twitter actually mentioned Blair's book that blew up her, her fandom really. Uh, welcome to the GD ice cube. Uh, She does not bleep that out, but I will. (laughs) Um, uh, I was really surprised because the ugly dogs, you know, that's how they, that's how a lot of them really found this community and started really following Iditarod. Um, But because of that book, they have found other books. And not surprisingly, Gary Paulson's Winter Dance is right up there. It's mentioned so many times. I was shocked to find out how many people, including some mushers, liked Sue Henry's Murder on the Iditarod Trail as their favorite mushing book. That was mind-boggling to me. I didn't make it past, like, the first or second chapter of that book. So, um, yeah. Uh, that one was shocking to me. Jim Lanier's autobiography got quite a few. Um, I was surprised that there weren't more autobiographies mentioned. This Much Country got a couple of nods, but like I said, it was mainly Gary Paulson and Sue Henry. I was shocked. We did get um, a couple of people suggesting uh, one of Jeff Schultz's uh, coffee table books, either Chasing Dogs or Icons of the Iditarod. I own both. They're amazing. I would also suggest people check out Double Vision. It's a project by Jeff Schultz and um, John Van Zyl. It's not completely Iditarod related, but both of them are very, um, very much synonymous with the race, so they do have quite a few dog mushing um, pieces of work in that book. But, uh, yeah, it was really surprising. Like I said, most of them said Winter Dance and, uh, and uh, Murder on the Iditarod Trail. And that just still boggles my mind.
1: Yeah, I have never re- read that uh, Murder on the Iditarod Trail. I can imagine it was some type <laughs> of mystery. Is that right? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's what they were going for. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a big, that's not really my genre, but it definitely kind of felt like that cheesy murder she wrote type stuff is what I remember when I tried to read the book and I just couldn't get into it.
1: And I was surprised to see, like you said, several of the autobiographies, including um, uh, the Kristen Knight Pace one, as well as Jeff King's book, Mm -hmm. a few for Mitch Seavey, a couple of for Jim Lanier, uh, and a few for, for Martin's book as well. So I know a lot of the guys, guys and gals have written books over the years, Writing a book is much different than it was even 10 or 15 years ago, just like in the rest of the world. A lot of people were writing books back then. Now, not so much. I mean, you could tell your entire story on Facebook pages or even Facebook stories or reels and probably get just as much of of an interest as you would from a book. So uh, I've been in school for a long time, so it's been a really long time since I've had a chance to sit down and read a novel or anything. So it'd be nice to get back and do that. So let's jump into the question of the night and guys, we are down to our final three questions and this one should be a fun one because several nights ago we asked you guys what would be uh, the name of uh, a puppy crew, a litter of puppies. And there was some very cool names that you came up with. So now we're going to step a little bit deeper into that realm And it would be if you were starting up a dog kennel right now and you were trying to figure out what your kennel name was going to be, what would you call it? Would it be after a lead dog or would it be after something that happened on the trail? Would it be like uh, Brent Sass's Wild and Free? I assume that's from, uh, uh, is that from Hobo Jim's song, right?
3: It is. It is, because that song was what inspired him to become a dog musher.
1: There you go. So the question is, what would be (laughs) your kennel name? And I'm going to have Michelle tell what ours is and how we came up with the name. But have you go first, Tony. I know you're not a dog musher. I know you have just (laughs) one dog, but I'm sure you've had aspirations of having a kennel one day and then and then you figure it out just how much work it is and probably uh, stuff that as far back as you could but what would be your kennel name if you had to choose
3: on by
1: oh all right and why would you say that
3: I i just always love i don't know why but that's like my favorite command out of mushing i don't know why it just on by just sounds so cool to me
1: All right, there you go. (laughs) I like it.
2: It's so dismissive. Yeah, on by. I say it sometimes to people when I'm not paying attention.
1: Yeah. Right? All right, right, Michelle, break it down. Where did we come up with our name?
2: So, uh, our first sled dog that we obtained together, we rescued from the state of Washington when we lived in Colorado. And We were expecting a white dog with blue eyes. That's how he was described to us. And we (laughs) we hurried down the mountain with three little kids in tow, rushed out to the airport, and they had us, at that time, it was 1999, they had us go out on the tarmac at DIA and get this dog directly from the plane. It was weird and it was not how it's done normally now or ever after that. So I'm not exactly sure why that was, but we went and got him directly from the plane on the tarmac and, um, stowed him in our 1989 Ford Bronco. And as soon as we lifted the crate and put him in the back, we both looked at each other and we went, hold on a second. This dog's not white. This dog is black and white. And yes, he has blue eyes, but he's black. And Robert and I quickly were scrambling, trying to find the phone number to the, the rescue, um, contact. And of course phones didn't work like they do now. And you didn't have your email (laughs) readily available on them like you do now. And so you do the flip phone thing and you try to remember the phone number and You know, usually if you were lucky, you had a voicemail somewhere and you just redialed. And that's basically what we did. And we got a hold of her and she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always been this black and white dog. What are you talking about? And so we're to this day, we're not sure we actually got the right dog. But in our books, (laughs) but in our books, we did get the right dog. We named him Aneke, I-N-E-K-A. And it's a strange little name that Robert discovered means rescued friend. And so our kennel name is named after him. Um, It was not in Colorado. Our kennel name then was different. I'll let Robert speak about that. But our kennel name ever since he passed away, um, just a month or two before we moved to Alaska, has been Timanake.
1: Yep, he was my buddy. That dog ended up being what we call the sergeant of the kennel. He would, he would boss everybody around. Think about a drill sergeant in those old military movies. That was his job. And he trained more dogs than probably any dog I've ever had. I've been doing this a long time. And he is forever in our minds. Of course, we say that name every day. And most of the public have no idea how to say the name. And that's my primary email. So anytime I'm ordering something and I have to tell somebody my email over uh, the phone or whatever, I always have to say Lead dog at teamaneke. T-E-A-M-I-N-E-K-A dot com. And it's very similar. A- and
2: they'll repeat it, Aneka.
1: Aneka. And <laughs> it's very similar to what Michelle has to do every single day of her life by selling, saying, My name is Michelle with one L, and it also goes back to our last name. We have to spell our last name for everybody under the sun. It is Forto, F-O-R-T-O. So we picked a very unique name that you have to spell every single day uh, (laughs) when, when you're dealing with the public. But otherwise, it is perfect for us, and I know that every one of these uh guys and gals with their own kennel probably have a very similar story to ours and as we talked about earlier in the coverage uh I really like all the different names I know when we were doing our uh uh Eagle Cap Extreme race I think that race had more unique names than any of them some of them just have you know really basic names like I don't know Reddington rushing or something like that or Uh, You know, something like that. But I I really enjoy the names as well. So the question is, guys, what would you call your sled dog kennel and why? And I know the why is tough when you're on Twitter and you have to do it in 120 or 40 or 60 characters, whatever they allow you to do these days. But if you head over to Facebook where the question is posted as well, You can write your story just like we told you with our name. So I did a question, hashtag that, and uh, we will see your responses and read some of them on the air. Before we go, Michelle, did we miss anything or do you have anything to add?
2: No, I just want to um, congratulate Jason Mackey on his hero's journey.
1: That is a hero's journey for sure um uh, in every stretch of the imagination and we could definitely go on and on about that uh as well uh tony did we miss anything or anything you want to add
3: no i'm just I, it's so weird that you know the the musher's banquet's not till sunday and here we are it's you know, Friday night. And I, I just don't know what to do with myself the rest of the weekend. I'm going to actually have to do chores and clean my house.
2: I don't know, Tony, you and Robert both have time to get on a plane and fly out to Nome, dance a little jig, put your Sunday's <laughs> best on and and attend the banquet.
1: I would love to if I didn't have these students. And <laughs> just, just a, a, a little bit of a teaser, we are talking off air. We've talked about this all season that uh, next year very well could be the year where uh, we take the the uh, podcast on the road. I know that they're very stickler about media credentials these days, but I don't see why we cannot fly to Nome, at least for the Nome week, the Finisher's Week, for a few days and host from there. I think that would be really cool. I think it would be cool to report from the banquet. <laughs> Think, we
2: have to do it when Insider and I did a pod shut down.
1: Yeah, that's when we need to show up. <laughs> we need to show up that day whenever that day is. We hope to be on the inbound flight of their outbound flight. So, maybe we'll try to do that next year. Uh and if if all goes well, this is I guess my good transition, if all goes well with our Patreon account over on patreon.com/ first Paul media you can help us get to nome next year if that is so <laughs> you're liking it's relatively cheap we only need a few of you guys to support us to do that and we promise we will bring you some cool footage from there we just got to make sure we don't have one of these classes and tony can get off work i know tony you you have to uh, you have to answer to the boss and get some time off but we may be able to make that work we have all the gear and i just got a really fancy field mic And I don't know if you know this, Tony, but I reached out to the guys that were covering the Yukon Quest. And I asked the question, Mm -hmm. what field, mic are you using? And they reached back to me. I don't recall the station name, but we immediately ran out and bought that. And we have the same professional (laughs) equipment that uh, they use there on the quest. So that is part of our mission next year. So other than that, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you tell your friends. Make sure you leave us a review. Some of you guys did leave a review and I'm even sweetening the pot a little bit. And I posted this on the, I did a friend's Facebook page. If you screenshot your review between now and the end of our coverage on Sunday, we're going to put you in the running for a randomly chosen name for a $100 Amazon gift card. So, If you've already turned off the podcast, you figure we're only handling the business portion of this. If you send us a review and we pick your name, we will send you a $100 gift card. That ends on Sunday at around 8 p.m. Other than that, guys, we are... It's not
2: over till it's over. It's
1: not over till it's over. So, other than that, we will be back on tomorrow. And I promise you, we have some interesting stories to talk about that we've already... Put in the queue, and then Sunday we're talking all about the banquet. So until then, see you guys next time. Goodbye.
0: From Dog Works Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.